So we're continuing our study uh, through bibliology. I'm going to finish up this week. And uh, again, if you remember, bibliology is the study of the Bible, sometimes called uh, canonicity. I don't know why it's over here. Oh, the choir was over there. I'm on the wrong side. So anyway, um, so what I wanted to do this morning is uh, look at some, uh, we, were, we were looking at reasons why the Bible was the word of God. And we talked about that last week. I want to um, look a little more deeply. Uh, I passed out this chart last week of the English Bibles. I don't know if you have those or not. I have a couple extra ones. Uh, but if you just uh, if you look at that, you'll see that um, Tyndale's Bible um, and uh, Wycliffe's Bible was written in uh, 1384. And remember, Wycliffe was dug back up by the Catholic Church and his ashes spread all over. Uh, Luther's German Bible was in 1522, but right before that, around 1440, the printing press was invented, and that really changed everything as far as the printing of the Bible. So up until that time, all the copies and translations were hand-copied on uh, papyra, and they, uh, and, and that's really... Um, now we have, of course, digital imaging, and, and Bibles can be printed uh, very, uh, in, a, in a simple manner. Uh, you will look down there and see in the middle, um, and we'll talk about it here in a minute, the 1611 King James Bible, which was the, uh, what they call the authorized version. I thought it would be, um, if you have any questions on that, by the way, see me afterwards. On the back... Of that, it has a little bit about the um, each one of those uh, Bibles, and um, and a little uh, interesting how they were translated. So, the King James actually, if you notice, um, the Covedale and the Tyndale Bible were before them, and they they relied heavily on the uh, Covedale and the Tyndale Bible that had previously been translated. So when the uh, authorized version came out in 1611, they had already had some other translations uh, before that. How do we get, how do you translate a Bible? Well, there's a bunch of Greek, new, uh, a Greek text, and uh, there's the Byzantine text or the majority text. I don't, I'm not an authority at all on this, so I'm just telling you what I've tried to research. But I thought it was interesting just to figure out how do people translate Bibles. You know, I'm thinking, what if Ty and Samuel wanted to go and decide to translate a new translation? Where would they go? They would, there's got to be a, a place somewhere. Well, there are original, there are Greek texts. Some of them date back to the 4th century, some to the 12th century. For instance, the Byzantine, or the majority text, as it's called, it goes to around the 11th or 12th century. Um, there's 5,800, I read this week, 5,800 partial or full text uh, that go back to probably as early as 300 uh, A.D. That's probably about the earliest Greek text we have. Some of them have different uh, variations in them. So uh, the Texas Receptus, I think it's called, or the Received Text, was actually the one that was used for the 1611 King James Version. And so if you, would, if you look in your Bibles, I looked in this one here, in the front of everybody's Bible, it has, a little, uh, uh, it has a little opening, and this one says the New Testament text, uh, and there are more manuscripts to support the New Testament. 
any other body of ancient literature, over 5,000 Greek, 8,000 Latin, and many more manuscripts in other languages. But if you look at the bottom of this, it says that they used the Texas Receptus, uh, uh, Textus Receptus as their, uh, as their uh, guide. So there's other texts. Uh, the Byzantine text is, is a, it's Greek. Uh, it's in, in the Greek. I think the Greeks keep that. Um, I couldn't find exactly where you store it. I don't know where you'd even go to look at it. There, there's a couple of texts called the Codex uh, Vaticanus or the Codex Sinaiticus. Where do you think that one would be kept at? Yeah, right. That's where it's at. I think it's probably under lock and key, and they probably would say you can't use it, or you, or it's it's there, or it's very limited. So all of these translations that have come out in the last couple of years, I noticed Chris and I were talking. What was the name of that? The legacy, legacy, legacy translation. I, it kept. There was a book, a Bible laid in the back. Uh, I know uh, Spencer Barnes Barnes Israel has a copy of it, and I had never seen it before. And so there's new translations coming out all the time. But there's the, uh, the critical text, which is a group that has taken the best of these texts and compared them and come up with a critical text. So sometimes you'll see new, new Bibles come out saying they're using the critical text of the, uh, of the Greek. Again, these go back sometimes from the 11th century all the way back to about three or 400 uh, AD. So you can imagine that these were all scribes that, that copied these. So there's going to be textual variations in them. Um, and that's what, what the, the job of the translators are, is to go back and compare these texts with other texts and see what the best translation is. We have no original text. And so the best we could have is, is the uh, early uh, Greek uh, translations. And so um, what we also have is not just the Greek translations, but then you have to decide how do you want to translate the Bible? And so the translators of the Bible, there's three basic different ways. There's what they call the formal equivalent, the dynamic or functional equivalent, or the paraphrase. So when when a group of men or women sit down and they decide they want a new translation or review the Bible, not only did they have to pick the Greek text that they want to use and try to find those texts and compare them, but they also have to make a decision on how they want to translate the Bible. So, for instance, the formal equivalent is, is often called the philosophy strives to maintain an exact loyalty to the original Greek and Hebrew text. And so uh, this is what's sometimes called a word-for-word translation. So they would take the Greek word and bring it into the English, and then that would be the word-for-word uh, translation. Uh, these translations are great for doctrinal and for study, theological analysis, and companion text to Bible dictionaries. So depending on your Bible, if you look in the front of it, it probably says it was translated some way using the formal equivalent translation there's also the dynamic functional trans- equivalent translation. This description was originally coined what is known as a sense-for-sense translation. This tries to translate not the word, but the thought. What was the author trying to think about? What was he looking at? What was he writing about? So that, that, they don't necessarily take the word for word, but the thought. 
the attempt here is to bridge the gap between yesterday and today's culture and language. It moder it's helpful for memorization, devotional studies. And then there's the paraphrased Bibles, and really they're not a translation. They just take the Bible and kind of paraphrase what they think it means. Uh, it's a devotional tool, uh, probably not very good for Bible study or Bible teaching, but they help. Uh, I think we used to have the good news, the modern man. Everybody had a copy of that. There's a new translate or paraphrase out now. So the um, if your Bible is uh, if your Bible is the the the, uh, the English Standard Version, the King James Version, the New American Standard, they all were translated by what's called the formal equivalent, basically word for word. If your Bible is one of those, uh, that's, uh, I think the NS, NASB is also translated that. And uh, if you have an NIV, which many of us do, and I have it on my phone, I love it, uh, and the new revised standard version, that was translated with a dynamic functional equivalent. So the, the, the translators took the thought there. So if you compare the two texts between the NIV and the New King James, you'll see that there's some differences in how they, they translate it. In fact, <clears throat> I think if I remember right, the NIV actually has a few less verses because they translate the, the thought rather than the word for word. Um, and then uh, paraphrase the Libby Bible, uh, the New Century Version. Those would all be samples of paraphrases that we have. So what seems to be simple, that simple in translating, not only do you have to pick the text that you're translating, you also have to pick the style that you're going to translate in. And so when we read our Bibles, uh, and I hope you are, many of us should look and see how they're translated, what, what, was, the, what was the translator's uh, purpose, and how were they using the translation. Uh, it's sometimes, for instance, I use the NIV just as a general study to, to get an overview, but <clears throat> if I'm teaching, I certainly would use the New King James that I have. I find it uh, the word-for-word study. And then most of the commentaries or... Um, Word study books go back to the new, the King James or the New King James. So you would, they don't use the NIV. So if you're looking up a particular word, you would have to go back and try to find that word, uh, and as opposed to taking a concordance, they're mostly like Young's concordance is set up for the uh, King James version. So, and any thoughts on that? I found it very interesting. We sit here and we have our Bibles every week. And we open them and we think, oh boy, you know, and we really don't have any idea how we got them. And that God has superintended down through the ages to make sure that we have his holy word. And yet um, there's many, uh, many different parts, particle, or, or, uh, parts that go into it. Uh, even the very, how do you translate it? What, what is the best translation? All right. Um, yes. Yeah. I, 
I think they took the vowels from the word Adonai and put them into Jehovah and made the word. There was no word Yahweh. There was really no word. It just means I am, I think, is what it means. And so they came up with this word Jehovah, which that was in the Hebrew text. Um, yeah, there's, there's things we just don't completely understand. Uh, Rick? Yeah. I think there's, there's over 5,800 either partial text or full text of, of Greek text going back to the third century. Um, I think there's a note in the front of our pew Bible here, Rick, if you want to look at that after, the, after, after Sunday school. Uh, so not during Sunday school. But, uh, I, uh, yeah, it's 56 or 5,800. So there's a lot of – sometimes there's just little pieces of, you know, the book of John or the book of Matthew. Other times there's whole text. Um, and so – oh, interestingly enough, um, I don't want to get into it too much – the King James, the 1611, there's this whole controversy about the 1611 King James Version. Uh, when it was translated, it actually included the Apocrypha, which I didn't know. Uh, but uh, most people don't read the 1611. They read, I think it's a 1789. But of all the things that we have to fight about in the Christian church, that has to be one, in my opinion, I'm giving you my opinion, that has to be one of the most ridiculous arguments you can make is to say that you're a 1611 King James-only church and pretty much exclude everybody else out. Is it a good translation? Sure, it's a very good translation. But uh, there's other very, very good translations, including the ESV. Um, Jamie Hatfield and I were in Florida one time, and we were looking for a Baptist church Sunday night, and we found a church called Oak Hills Baptist. I'll never forget it. I walked in, the 20 people there, the pastor is a retired Army or Navy chief, uh, you know, still looked like he'd come out of the uh, 40 years in the Navy, and um, I had a Kindle with me, and Jamie had his phone and the very first words out of his mouth, something like this, I hope there's no sinners here tonight that are using that electronic Bible. And worse than that, please help, God forbid, they would be using something besides the King James. And so I looked at Jamie, he looked at me, and I slid my Kindle under my leg. We were afraid they were going to bring the snakes out. But uh, that's the kind of thing, you know, here we're looking for a church on a Sunday night to worship and hear the word of God. And that's the kind of foolishness that you have. So anyway, if you disagree with that, I'm, there's sometimes I get to give commentary. Um, yes. Yeah, there are new texts that were discovered. Um, look, we talked before, the best of men are men at best. And so you re- I've been reading all this, how they, how they came about this. And some, there's no doubt that some of these scribes embellished some things. And so you go back and you look at other things. And you try to figure out the best you can. Is God superintending this? Somehow he is, yes. But men are still 
making their own assumptions. You know, uh, the argument in the King James is there's a lot of Lord and Saviors that really aren't in other texts. Not that that's wrong to have Lord and Savior, but they're, they're adding to it is the argument. So there are new texts that have come out. I think the critical text, Chris, is basically a conglomeration of the best text. Um, and by the way, the other thing is when you hear the word critical, uh, they're not, it's not that they're critical of the Bible. They're trying to find the best and most uh, um, applicable text that, that would be the best translation. So, all right. Any questions or thoughts on that? That was actually uh, 387 that was decided what books would. The Old Testament was already. The Old Testament, the, the, uh, the 39 books of the Old Testament was already uh, decided by the first century. Uh, Christ quoted from that. The uh, 27 New Testament books, I think it was three. Do you remember, Ty? Was it the 380s? It was in the 360s, 380s uh, that they finally decided these are the 27 books that are going to be in the New Testament. Some were left out. The Apocrypha we talked about last week. So, um, anyway, just some, uh, I gave you this, uh, this handout here, uh, some biblical words. Uh, I thought it was helpful. Uh, and uh, just, you, I added some, I found some. The... Uh, I just want to talk about a couple of them this morning uh, before we uh, finish uh, this week. Um, Inspiration. Talk a lot about the inspiration of Scripture. That's one of the words on there. I want to talk about inspiration and fallibility. You can look at the rest of these at your own time. Um, The Lewis Berry Schaefer says, the true doctrine of inspiration contends that God so directed, this is very critical, so listen to this, so directed the author that without destroying their own individual literary style or personal interest, his complete and connected thoughts towards man was recorded. Various opinions have been advanced of how the extent of divine control over human authors there's been called, these are called theories of inspiration. How is it that God, we can say that God's word is inspired, and we'll talk about God breathe here in a minute. How is it that it is inspired, yet men weren't puppets? That, that's, that's the idea. Luke had a different view than John did, but yet the word, very words that Luke wrote are inspired. David certainly wrote psalms differently than Moses would have written. So uh, there's a couple different views here of inspiration. Uh, naturalistic, this is, uh, the name applies, it's a theory that the Bible is only a human product and therefore void of any supernatural element. This view, which discredits and degrades the word of God, is held by infidels and unregenerated people. But many people say the Bible is just a collection of books um, that really has God's not involved in. 
uh, partial inspiration, if you can imagine the name of it, the theory is that it's indicated only certain parts of the scripture inspired. Uh, these are people that might say only the red letter portion, if you have a red letter Bible, is inspired. What's the danger with that? What's the danger? What, who decides, right? Who decides what's inspired? So either the whole Bible is inspired, either the whole Bible is right and inspired by God. If you have one little, one little word that's not inspired, then you have a problem because then men decide and women decide who is what is inspired. Um, the uh, there is the gracious uh, theory. This theory of inspiration suggests that the writer of the Bibles were inspired in the same way, through a fuller degree, as a spirit-filled man empowered them today. Uh, so, what the argument here is is that the God just was gracious, but Calvin's writings are as important as the Apostle Paul's, uh, and that Luther's writings would be as important as Peter's writings. And so that, that's a real problem. God was not just gracious, but he superintended over the scriptures. And then there's the verbal view, which I think is a correct view. This theory, as it designates, implies and maintains that the Bible even in its very words, are inspired book. This claim is made from the original writings only and not for copy. So when we say the Bible is inspired, verbally inspired, we, don't, we understand that, there's, there, that we don't have the original text. But the original text, God's original words, the letters that Paul wrote to the churches were inspired by God. The, the Psalms were inspired. So we say the original copies translations or quotations, even though they may date back to the early days of Christian era. However, there are no original manuscripts that are now in existence. It's important to observe that the most careful study of these copies and translations and quotations which are available yield clear evidence that a present text Bible are very close or reproductions of the original. We're not arguing that, the, that this... Bible I have here is inspired, verbally inspired. We're arguing that the very first translations were. There's a possibility, right, that there could be, uh, but uh, based on what we have from all these texts that go back, we are we can say, I think, without with certainty that we have the Word of God, and that that's what we teach here at Bible Chapel. So, any thoughts on that? All right, um, so uh, in uh, William Evans, he writes this, what is meant by the term inspiration? This question is answered by scripture itself. Scripture itself. It defines it in its own terms. He says, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And the word inspired literally means what? God breathed. God breathed the word. So when we read in 2 Timothy uh, 3.16 that all scripture is God breathed, somehow God, as he breathed into Adam and Eve, or Adam in the garden and brought life out of dust, somehow God breathed into men and they were uh, brought to uh, the word of God. 
the term given by inspiration signifies in it the writings of the Old Testament, which Paul was speaking of. Paul was actually, when he says this in 2 Timothy 3.16, he was looking back to the Old Testament because the New Testament wasn't written. But he says there uh, that they are inspired. Uh, and so um, this is God, in breathing of God in the man, qualifying them to give utterance. It is God speaking through men and is therefore just as much the word of God as God spoke every single word of it. So that's what we're saying. When it's God breathed, it's that God spoke through men to, for the Holy Scriptures. And um, then we have the other verse in Second Peter, if you want to turn there, Second um, Peter 1.21. These are two critical verses understanding inspiration of Scripture. Um, 2 Peter 1, Peter says here, uh, well, I'll start with verse 20. Knowing this first, no prophecy of Scripture as in any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So Peter says that, they, Paul says they were God breathed in, Peter says they were moved uh, by God uh, to speak. So um, the, this uh, Evans says here, the particle move may be translated when moved. So the passage teaches that holy men of God wrote the scriptures when moved to do so by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just they came up with it on their own, but Holy men of God spake as they were filled with God's breath, and they wrote down as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Um, turn to Matthew 14 a minute. Go back in history. My uncle was always um, Rich's dad. Uh, was always uh, one to point out specific words in a text and compare them with other words. And uh, as you look at Matthew 14, just for a minute, let me read a portion of this. This is speaking of Herod uh, and the beheading of John the Baptist. And I'll just skip through this a little bit. At the time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. And then the, Matthew goes back and recounts what happened when John was killed. Um, and it says, And Herod laid hold of John and bound him, this is verse 3, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Remember, Philip, uh, John the Baptist had said, You're living in sin. And so they put him in prison. But let's just skip down here a minute. Let's go to verse um, Eight uh, or verse seven. Therefore, um, well, I can't. I, Herod's it was Herod's birthday in verse six, and celebrated the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased them. You can figure out what that was. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And she said, having been prompted by her mother, give me the John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the king was sorry 
Nevertheless, because of the oath and because he had sat down and he commanded it to be given to her, so he sent it to John to be beheaded, and his head was brought. There's the word there. That's the same word. It was carried in. hard to think of my uncle sometimes. He was very special to me. But picture, picture this, the head of John the Baptist carried on a platter. They bring it in and they set it before uh, Herodias' daughter. That's what God did with men in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He carried them along. He put their, as it were, he carried them. He breathed into them so that they could write the right words, but he also carried them along and, and, and moved them. Um, the Greek word pharaoh here, this distinctly teaches that scripture was not written by mere men or at their suggestion, but men moved upon, prompted, even indeed driven by the promoting of the Holy Spirit. This declaration of Peter may be said, to imitate that the Holy Ghost was especially and miraculously present in the writers of scriptures. Somehow God not only breathed into them, but he moved them. He carried them along. He, he supported them, as it were, so that they would write the exact words that were to be written. So then um, I asked myself, well, did inspiration affect God's word? If they were inspired, were they just merely puppets? Did God just say, here's what you're going to say? And so um, I, I did a little research on that, and it says here, if the question was asked whether inspiration affected the words, it must be answered in the affirmative. It has to be. Inspiration has to affect words, specific words. However, it's hardly possible inspiration could ensure the correct transmission of thought without some way affecting the words. God had to somehow affect the words or it wouldn't have been the right words. That, that's, that's true. Yet, in effect, the words not directly and immediately as dictating them in the ears of the writer. So I know this gets technical, but God's moving men. He's breathing into men. He's carrying them along. They're saying exactly the words that God wants them to say, but he is not dictating the words to them to say. You see the difference? And so it's a very important distinction here. Um, I wrote some things here. In their minds and producing were such vivid and clear ideas and thoughts and facts that the writers could find words fitted for their purpose. So when John wrote, he wrote exactly what John wanted to write. But it's exactly what God, the Holy Spirit, carried him along and inspired him to write. There's no distinction. The divine side, the Holy Spirit gave uh, through men clearly and faithfully what he wished to communicate. And then from the human side, that communication came forth in language such as men themselves would naturally have chosen. So a fisherman would speak like a fisherman. A doctor would speak like a doctor. All of them were inspired by God, carried along, and said exactly what they were supposed to say without God sticking the words in their mouth to make them say it. So is that, 
do, do we understand that, 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 how important that is to see the view of inspiration? It's, it's, it's exactly what God wanted, but God used the instrument of man to speak through. Our Bible Chapel Constitution says something like this. We believe the Bible that God spoke in his written word is a process of dual authorship. The Holy Spirit so superintended the human authors that through their own personalities and styles of writing, they composed and recorded God's word to man without error. This being true, the Holy Scripture is self-authenticated. Its binding authority does not depend upon the testimony of human beings or any church. That's a reference to the Catholic Church that says they have the authority it says, but entirely upon God, its author, who is truth itself, all people must acknowledge its authority because it is the very words of God. Did John write them? Yes. Did John hear those words? Did Peter speak those words? Yes, but they are the words of God himself. When Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God, that's Peter speaking but it's also the very words of God that are written down for us to understand. Yes. No, well, I, I guess the distinction is, first of all, it's not in the canon necessarily what they would say at their defense. Second of all, it is, I would still say that God spoke, If he, let's take Peter, let's say, if it was Peter, that he still spoke through Peter, but it was still Peter's words. God would give them to him what to say, but they were still Peter's words. And so I, I guess that's what I would say. Well, there are things that were certainly written. I, there's no way Moses knew what the, what, how the wor- world began. So he had to be given those words. Now, whether some people think that, he, that they were written down by Enoch or whatever, but you could argue that there are certain things that are commands, for sure, Becky. You're right. God says, thou shalt not kill. That's certainly uh, uh, something that was written, but yet it was done through the instrument of men uh, that... That, were, that the Bible came. So Moses couldn't change it, but God spoke it. Yeah. And I do think you're right. There are, there are things that are clearly God-spoken, you know, that obviously the words of Jesus in the New Testament are not spoken through men, but they were recorded through the, the, these human instruments. So, all right. Um, let me just talk about the sufficiency of Scripture a minute because I think this is important. Um, we believe uh, that uh, 
special revelation of God appears entirely in the scripture, which contains all things necessary for God's glory and the salvation of sinners and instruction necessary for life and godliness. This comes out of the Bible Chapel Constitution. What does it mean to have the sufficiency of scripture? It's one thing to have the inerrancy of scripture, the infallibility of scripture, but what does it mean when we say that um, sufficiency of scripture? Uh, turn just quickly to Second Timothy with me. And I'll, uh, three, and I'll just go through this. Second Timothy three. Um, <clears throat> let's just look at verse 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped in every good work. Um, the working definition here I would write of, of, of Scripture, and this is what I wrote, the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture is a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith. To say that the Scriptures are sufficient means that the Bible is all we need to equip us for life, faith, and service. We're not saying you don't need to have a science book. What we're saying is for life and service, the Bible is really our foundation. It's what we need to uh, survive. And in, in surviving a Christian life, it provides a clear demonstration of God's intention to restore broken relationships between Himself and humanity through His Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, and through the gift of faith. No other writings are necessary for this good news to be understood, nor other writings required to equip us for faith and life. So we, we have the scriptures, we have the Holy Scripture that really teach us how to live and how to function. Um, when we refer to scriptures, we go obviously talk about the Old Testament and New Testament. Um, I just want to close with this uh, here. Uh, the, um, the second, in, in verse 17 here, or verse 16, Paul says... Um, Paul says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof. Notice there, reproof uh, is doctrine is teaching. Reproof has the idea of conviction. Uh, Paul, when we read the scriptures, we are not only learning the scriptures, we're being reproved, we're convicted. And then the third word there, he says, is... Uh, is instruction. So not only are we convicted of our sin, we're taught what to do about that sin. We're given instruction. That's the put off, as it were. Don't, don't do this, but here's what you do. Here's the put on. And so the scriptures tell us, if you think of the reproof or correction as negative, the, uh, the uh, put on is the positive side. And then he goes on that the man of God... Uh, instruction and righteousness that's the sanctification that comes so the scriptures reprove us they tell us what we're doing wrong they instruct us they tell us what to do right that's the correction and then they give us what we need for sanctification they lead us into all righteousness so um benson says leading them from one degree of piety and virtue to another 
And so we would call this the progressive sanctification. So in the scriptures, we have everything we need for life and for godliness as, as we have recorded. So I'll close. If you have questions, you can see me afterwards. I hope this has been profitable to you. I hope it's not just intellectual. This is, this is the very word of God. And we leave it sit around our houses a lot of times and we forget. But this is everything we need for life and godliness is contained in here. So I hope you appreciate what we have and what God has given to us through the ages. So thank you.